Welcome to the Water People Podcast. I'm Lauren Hill, and my co-host is Dave Rastovich. Today, we're in conversation with narrative nonfiction journalist and swimmer Susan Casey. Susan is the author of three New York Times bestselling books, including The Wave, In Pursuit of the Rogues, Freaks, and Giants of the Ocean. Susan was the creative director for Outside Magazine and served as editor-in-chief for both Sports Illustrated Women and O, the Oprah Magazine, as well as being editor-at-large across all of Time, Inc.'s magazine titles. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bundjalung and Gubby Gubby nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. I first encountered Susan Casey's work uh, from her book, Voices in the Ocean, which... No, that's not true. You would have encountered her work in O Magazine many, many times. Nice try, but there's no way I was going to let you get away with hiding Oprah Winfrey's uh, effect on your life. (laughs) We're mutual Oprah fans. I'd like to <laughs> no, make that clear. Say, no. <laughs> yes, I have watched Oprah Winfrey shows while stuck in Florida inside the air conditioning while it's 40 degrees. That's, that is true. I grew and up, I did cry. I grew up watching Oprah every day pretty much after my mom came home from work. And it was this powerful source of conversation and, um, and connection for my mom and I. Anyway, Susan Casey used to edit Oprah's O Magazine. Now she's a New York Times bestselling author of books, including the one that I was starting to mention, Voices in the Ocean, which is about, gosh, how do you put it succinctly, dolphin culture, Yeah, really. Yeah, well, the title is A Journey into the Wild and Haunting World of Dolphins. Mm. Um, So it's a great book for all of us who have any interest at all in dolphin culture and and human and dolphin interaction through time. Her other books, The Devil's Teeth, about great whites up in the Farallon Islands. Yeah, is it the Farallons? Mm. They're the ones off California there. And then also the one that introduced me to her work was The Wave, and that is just amazing, amazing book about rogue waves and the nature of freak and giant waves in the ocean. And the thing that really got me so into her work was how she goes straight to the heart of the matter Mm. and firsthand experiential knowledge with these interests she has and dives deeply and our conversation with her revealed that you know that years in the making many many years in the Mm. making of these books seven or so years for these books and and really just eats, sleeps and breathes these stories, which a is A room's inspiring. full of research. Mm-hmm. We, we got to jump on Zoom with Susan and in the background you could see these piles, these like looming piles of research that she's built up for the next project that she's working on. I was so excited to speak with her as an aspiring writer myself because, um, yeah, she is a master of her craft and is a beautiful storyteller. I mm. love the way she... She has this ability to be firmly grounded in the factual, but also not hesitate from the imaginative or the spiritual or the mystical. Mm. She's really able to encapsulate 
and move between worlds mm. in her writing, and I love that. Yeah, definitely. And it feels like uh, for those of us who are ocean-centric and have our connection to the ocean be through fishing, diving, sailing, snorkeling, surfing, swimming, whatever, paddling, we all know that there are moments in the water and around the water where we're intellectualizing the experience and we want to understand perhaps the science of why we feel so good when we're in and around the water Mm. or sometimes we can have totally indescribable mystic moments and for us as surfers that's in the tube or for you it'd be hanging 10 and levitating on the front of your nose of your longboard and then there is the emotional element and that's I I feel why I've really loved her work is that she does touch on all of those ways that we interpret and experience the ocean and everything there. Um, so, so at a time where it feels like the way we communicate what we're passionate about is really important, you know, where we have such extremism and division and we have algorithms that just reinforce our own perspective all the time, it feels like Right now, it's just so refreshing when we come across people who can tell stories in a way that loop us all in Mm. and perhaps touch different parts of our minds and bodies and spirits. And Susan's work does that. And, of course, I feel like the, the dolphin world is a really tricky one to talk about and not mm. be categorised as new agey and fluffy and whatever, you know, like just super touchy-feely. And she spoke about that yeah. and, and how, whoa, she's setting herself up here, going to somewhere like Dolphinville in Hawaii where people have built a whole sort of community around swimming with dolphins and the epiphanies they have from those swims. It's so it's so interesting. And she goes there, like she literally goes there, but also she, in her storytelling, isn't afraid to delve into that territory to also go into, you know, the most recent cetacean research to talk about the history of cetacean research and this longstanding relationship going back to the ancient Minoan culture of Crete to really look at this interspecies relationship across time and space and how we have changed and shaped each other. Mm. Yeah, I've been on the receiving end of a lot of uh, jokes when it comes to (laughs) dolphin connections and stuff. And and so I know what that feels like, but it just doesn't matter because when you have an interaction like we often do at our closest beach here with the resident pod, the, actually the other day I had a surf where, or actually I had a whole day where we were just on the property and I slipped down through the bush and didn't see another human uh, all day except for yourself and Minoa. And then I paddled out to the surf and had uh, about 15 dolphins all around me and we caught a wave together and actually had to bottom turn around them to not run into them as they were jumping out of the face of the wave and I paddled back out and got another wave with them and then I saw two humans down the end of the line of the wave but in that day I'd had like you know six or seven times more dolphins around me than humans in that whole day and you know, if I go any further and start talking about that experience and what it means to me, it starts to sound really cheesy (laughs) (laughs) and really on the nose. And so uh, I don't, and I won't put you through that, listeners. Um, But it is, that to me just shows how it takes a really 
very gifted storyteller to be able to navigate that space where you talk, you say something and and an eye roll comes soon after. It's so much like surfing or we've talked about this before, like sex. It just feels so much better than it sounds to talk about, to experience these things. Um, But I feel so grateful to have access to someone like Susan Casey's work because she can articulate these things in a way that feel a bit less eye-rolly and speak to these very real, true experiences that can be challenging to articulate. Mm. Yeah. So for for me, the, the opportunity to just get a little bit further into those stories, the things that couldn't fit into her books and how she felt when she sat on a ski with Laird Hamilton and scooted down the face of a huge wave at Piahi. Or went to the bottom of the deep mm-hmm. ocean on a submersible. Yep, yeah, yeah, or going out with the biggest great whites out off the coast there in North America. And, and it's just great, you know, that this, she's someone who is uh, just living on that vibrant edge and is able to report back to the rest of us what's happening out there in those places. start the podcast with the question about a time or experience after which you are never the same. Do you have a story like that, Susan, that you'd be willing to share with us? Of course. I mean, the problem is I have so many stories like that. I think every, I mean, honestly, I could give you a 10. I mean, going down the face of Jaws with Laird Hamilton, when I'm not a big wave surfer, but I was writing about giant waves he gave me the chance to fill one for myself. That certainly turned things upside down for me. It was able to understand something about the power of the ocean in a way that was more than intellectual. Uh, you know, it's it's one thing to think about it or talk to scientists about it or watch it from a boat. And it's another thing to feel it reverberating, you know, in your cells. <laughs> but I have to say the experience that changed everything for me was uh, The Farallon Islands, um, my first book called The Devil's Teeth. Because when I first went out there, I had not been exposed very much to the ocean. I I should just say the Farallon Islands are 27 miles due west of the Golden Gate Bridge. They're actually technically part of San Francisco, but they are like on a different planet, really. And when you get out there, you realize just how wild things are. There's a lot of colliding currents. There's upwelling. There's just the whole food chain sort of swirling around there and very large congregation of great white sharks. And the water is super dark and... Uh, You can't really see anything, but all these large animals come to the surface. The great white sharks come and eat seals on the surface. There are blue whales lunge feeding. And so I went out there to write about two scientists. And uh, my exposure to the ocean hadn't been that uh, extensive. I was a competitive swimmer, so I was a water person. But I grew up around lakes in Canada, and I had only done a couple ocean swims. And I was a little scared of it, actually. And it was that that fear that kind of propelled me out there. And when I got there and I realized just how magnificent it was and how something could just pop up out of nowhere from this, basically what I could tell was like this parallel universe, all these, all this action, all these animals, and we didn't know anything about it. And it's, you know, it's most of the planet. So that was like probably the most important thing for me because I got bitten by the bug and all I wanted to do was see what was in that parallel universe 
And then slowly, after spending more time out there, I became more comfortable around the ocean and more in extreme conditions. And even though I'm never, as you know, like you can never really completely feel comfortable. You always have to have that sort of edge of knowing that you're in a power that's so much greater than you when you're out there. But it was more respect than fear. It was more like understanding than fear. Wow. And so when you think back to that time, how long ago was that? And does it come back to you regularly where you think of that point where you were different after that time in the islands there? Oh, I mean, when I first went out there, it was like 2001. It was, uh, I was working in Manhattan. I was working for uh, Time Inc., which was this big magazine publisher that published Time Magazine and a bunch of other magazines. And they allowed me to go out there just to, this is back in the day when magazines would add all this money. They allowed me to go out there and just to check it out, to write, maybe write a story about it. And it was very hard to get a permit, but I got out there for like five hours. And of course, I didn't see a shark that day, but I did see a decapitated seal carcass and met the scientists. And that began a sort of ongoing relationship where I would go back out there every year and sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, just to participate in a science program and write about it. And yeah, it never goes away. In fact, I'm working on a book right now where I'm sort of circling back to that initial notion that, you know, that we think about the ocean as being the part that we see, but that's just the skin. That's the ceiling of the room. I mean, the whole room that's below it, which is you know, like 93% of the planet is below 600 feet. 93% of the living space by volume is what I mean. Like it's just all of the planet. Life exists in the darkness. So I'm thinking a lot about that right now. And that was the place where I really was first given the opportunity to experience it. Yeah. It really haunts my dreams, that place. It is not a place where humans are in charge. And that's sort of refreshing, you know, it's, um, there are so many things that are bigger than we are, especially when you're dealing with the ocean. And I think it would do our species quite a bit of good to, you know, take a little bit of that humility on board on a daily basis. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. It's so wonderful, isn't it? That the ocean does that for us in a way or to us where it's not our imagining or visualizing our insignificance in the grand scheme of things. It's not a visualization or a meditation. It's actually happening in real time when, like you said, when you're on that face of that wave at Jaws or you're looking at those incredible apex predators out in the Farallon Islands, it's it's just happening right there. And it's obvious that you feel it in your bones how weak of a swimmer we are when you're around a big fish like that. You feel how little you are when you see that amazing green cathedral, blue cathedral. That's how I've always termed Piahi. It's like every 20 seconds a new Sistine Chapel is being built, illuminated by the sun and then deconstructed. And then another one comes and you can't help but stare at it in absolute awe and it's so wonderful that someone like yourself who can write so beautifully and articulately has gone to those experiences and those places and uh and that's just it's so wonderful because I feel like you have been able to give gift a lot of people that feeling of what it feels like to be there in those spaces yeah, which is why we're so stoked to be able to chat with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, that's what a beautiful way to put it. I mean, Piahi is sublime. I've, I really like this concept, particularly when you're dealing with something like a 
you know, 60 foot wave, the sublime being the spectacular beauty, but there's an edge of something bigger than bigger than beauty. And it verges into the idea of um, somebody said, it's like, it fills your mind with the most agreeable horror, but it's like, <laughs> if you look at the, if you look at a giant mountain, or if you look at a giant wave, or if you uh, think about journeying down into the abyss, or, you know, these are things that there's just a certain, I guess, awe provoking quality to them. And so that's why I think the sublime is uh, a word that comes up a lot for me. Mm. And I think I like it. I think I, that's what I seek. Mm, that sounds like a the, the path for a life well lived, constantly seeking the sublime. <laughs> you mentioned the devil's teeth, Susan, and to close out that book is just the most beautiful line that resonates with me all the time. And you wrote, there's another world and it's in this one. You mentioned you didn't grow up around salt water. You grew up around fresh water, but You've come to write this series of books dealing with the ocean and, like Dave was saying, taking us all on these incredible, awe-inspired adventures into this parallel world. But how did you come to make a life and a livelihood that really revolves around the ocean? I mean, what has kept you coming back book after book to keep diving into our watery world? You know, after uh, my last book, Voices in the Ocean about dolphins, I actually had a book idea that was uh, had a bigger environmental bent to it than than the ocean. It was it was more about risks that were taking extreme risks that we're taking with our own survival. And I spoke to my editor about it and asked, you know, hey, what do you think if I was to write a book? I wasn't setting out to try to write a book that wasn't about the ocean. He said, yeah, I don't sure go ahead. But after I worked on the proposal for a while, it was more like almost two years I worked on it, I realized that I wasn't having that much fun and things were not going that well with just various, like, it's like the universe was kind of trying to take me off that path. And I eventually finished it, showed it to my editor. And he said, well, I really like this, but there's other going to be a lot of other books writing about this. You could do it, but I don't know if it's the best thing for you to do. And I just went, okay, I'm not doing it. And I went back to what I had been hoping to write about before this idea, that idea came along, and uh, which was the deep ocean, you know, everything below 600 feet. And almost the moment I started to work on that, everything just felt, just everything went easier. Um, I was happier. I had more fun. And I just think if writing is a, a way of sort of taking people into this a, a world, and I think hopefully it's a world that readers want to hang out in with you, it helps if you love it so much. I mean, there's just nothing to me that even remotely rivals the fascination of the ocean. And there's never going to be any shortage of stories to tell about it. So, you know, I, I think it just was one thing led to another. It's, it's my, my friend, a friend of mine, Martha Beck says, you should always, you know, in your own compass, you know, you have a true North and that's mine. I, when I try to go off it, I end up in places that I'd rather not be. So probably part intuition, part, I'm really interested in your style of immersive journalism. You write yourself into your stories. You're not afraid to use the pronoun I. And I really wanted to ask you about how you grapple or handle the idea of objectivity and if it's of importance to you in the course of writing stories that 
interweave science and anecdotal experiences? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a journalist, but I, I don't, not a newspaper reporter, you know, and, and I write it kind of in a style that's called many names. I, I mean, the one I like is narrative nonfiction. It is also called the new journalism sometimes. And I mean, I don't think it's possible to be objective, uh, completely objective. But on the other hand, I don't want to start some project where I'm in the tank for somebody. I kind of aim for neutral. I start off, I'm not a skeptic. I'm not a foaming at the mouth fan of somebody I'm writing about. But in general, I try to write about people who I think are doing really cool things. uh, Just because I don't want to spend my time or my creative energy, you know, trying to take somebody down. I I did have a villain in Voices in the Ocean. It was a dolphin uh, trader. He traded, exported and caught and, you know, and it was an uncomfortable process. And I wouldn't say I would never write about people that I don't like, but I really like writing about people who I admire. Um, And I admire scientists. And even though I'm not a scientist, I will just sort of take the time and find the right scientists and talk. The ones that that I tend to hang out with are the ones that don't mind if I ask them a really unreasonable amount of questions. I'll say things like, could you please explain this the way you would explain this to a third grade class? And I try to span the whole range between reading the actual scientific literature and trying to get them to do it for me as sock puppets so I can really understand (laughs) it. Because there's nothing more fascinating um, in a lot of ways than what's going on in the science world. But not every scientist is not the brilliant brain that does the science is not always the same kind of person who's going to be able to talk about it in an engaging way. So in, in that regard, I guess I'm kind of a bridge. So I guess that's my version of objectivity. But I also think that if anybody's going to sit down at this particular moment in our culture and spend, you know, I don't know, hours and days, maybe reading a book, there's got to be some sort of emotional payoff for them. And just dumping a bunch of information on people does not engage their emotions. And this is an issue, I think, that comes up a lot when you start to feel like an activist, which at this point, I, you know, I'm clearly an activist, but I won't get where I want to get in my narrative part of my job, my storytelling part of my job, by letting the activist part of my head take over. I will slide that in into the narrative as opposed to just laying it out on the table, like this is bad, this is good, you know. So there's a certain sort of uh, balance to it, I guess you'd say, between subjectivity and complete like sort of, um, I'm looking for another word than activism, but something beyond subjectivity and then just information the information can be used in service of the narrative as long as it's accurate. I mean, they take a lot of care to make sure that everything that I write that has a science underpinning, actually everything that I write totally is accurate. I record everything. I transcribe all my own recordings. I make a real point of, of ensuring accuracy because you to simplify something, it doesn't have to be to diminish it, but it can be if you don't fully understand what it is that you're, what all the ingredients are in the, you know, the consomme, I guess. You boil it down, boil it down, boil it down. But hopefully at the end, it's something richer as opposed to something that's just smaller. You know what Mm. I mean? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Is that a process or an approach that you have cultivated while you've been writing, while you've been doing your books? Or is that something that was really 
imparted to you at an earlier time in your life by anyone in particular or any mentors? Well, yes, yes and yes, I think, because um, when I was out of the Farallon Islands, I hadn't, I had, I sort of ended up with this great big story that wasn't a magazine article at all. It was a book. I figured that out. But at that particular moment in time, I was a magazine editor and I had done some writing, but not a lot and certainly never written anything long except for the book proposal. That was the longest thing I'd ever written. <laughs> and uh, one of my friends who um, now works with John Oliver, Tim Carvel, uh, who had edited a column that I wrote said, there's only one thing you need to remember, and that's take notes all the time. If you have something incredible happens to you and it's in the middle of the night and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll remember that three hours from now after I sleep, you won't. So you always have to sit down and keep notes and there's just no such thing as too many notes. That was the best advice I ever got. But I think as I've continued to figure out how to work, I've refined my own system, which almost everybody I know who writes has got a system of their own. Some people use a lot of index cards. It's everybody's got their own little thing that they figured out works for them to sort of juggle all this material. Mm. Um, and it keeps evolving, obviously. I keep trying to refine it. It will never be perfect. Mm. Susan, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you, which it's a question, but it, it answers itself in a way with the opening quote in Voices in the Ocean about magic, that magic exists, uh, or what is it? Is the, the world is full of magic things waiting for our senses to grow sharper. You've really dove deep into specific subjects and for us it's it's voices in the ocean and the wave and I think I've probably read the wave four or five times and passed it on to pretty much everyone I know who surfs and I wanted to know oh, your your you. deep deep inquiries into these areas it's surely it's developed even more of a sense of awe and wonder for you is it that way do you feel like engaging your intellectual curiosity to match your perhaps the your stirred emotions on an issue does it all lead to a more amazing world for you like when you finish a project you look back and go wow I have so much more awe and appreciation than I did before I started the process of writing a book yeah because I think the the more I there's so many dimensions to the ocean I mean you know, there's the biological dimension, there's the interplay between the wind and the, the surface, the wave dimension of it, there's there's the deep. And right now, working through the layers of the deep and, and having actually now had the chance to go into the abyss myself a couple times, it is beyond anything. I, I actually really spend a lot of time thinking, like, how can you possibly translate some of this stuff into words? This book was gonna, is going to take me eight years by the time I'm done. And I think it's because it's big. This whole, as, as a human on planet Earth, the vastness and the magnificence. And, you know, and there's a different temporal quality to it. I mean, we're just, we're, a, we're from it. We're a part of it. But it doesn't have much to do with us in terms of, it, it's just the great, years of the planet you know the the processes that take billions of years the the creation of life you know coming up through the surface of the seabed but the seabed itself even goes down miles beneath that it's filled with life and so the science keeps emerging 
about what they call the deep biosphere, which is even way beneath the surface of this, you know, the ocean crust. And the more we look and the more we learn about life in the ocean, I mean, the top of your head can blow off. It's just the kingdom of of majesty. And so, yeah, yeah, it does. The awe does build up. I have to say, I when I got out of my first submersible dive, as we got closer to the surface, the emotion that I started feeling was grief. And it was like a very deep grief that I've only ever felt once in my life when I lost my father. And I just did not want to get out of that submersible. I felt like I was being ripped out of my home. And I knew that I wasn't probably going to have another chance at least not anytime soon to do it again. And it just, I, I couldn't talk because if I talked, I was going to sob. Mm-hmm. I don't Have you ever had a chance to dive in a submersible? It is, it is just spiritual beyond belief. So can you, can, can you, you tell us, us a little bit more? Like, can you talk us through the firsthand experience of you, Wen and Alvin, right? Who's been in operation for 50 years or something? No, but I was in um, James Cameron's submersible. It's called Neptune, anyone. And um, it's got a plexiglass hull. This one dove to 1,000 meters, so it was like 3,300 feet. And when they're not diving any deeper than that, actually, they can dive a little bit deeper than that with the plexiglass hull, but that's still what they call the twilight zone. That's the the zone right underneath the, the epipelagic zone, the sunlight zone of the ocean. So it goes from about 600 uh, feet down to, uh, you know, 200 meters down to 1,000 meters, basically. Mm. Um, but it is one of the most liveliest uh, layers of the ocean. It's got just a tremendous amount of life. So that the dive that I was mentioning was that one. And then the second dive that I did was in Victor Vescovo's submersible, which is a full ocean depth submersible. It's the only one of its kind that's ever existed. There's, it's the only one of its kind that exists now. Um, it's privately owned, and um, and it goes to eleven thousand meters. Uh, wow. I, I just had the opportunity to dive in that one as well, but that's a different experience. That's like being in the space shuttle or something. The one that really got me emotionally was the, the dive into the twilight zone, because when we got down there, first of all, you're in this plexiglass bubble, so you can see everything. It's like you could. You, you put out your hand, you're not even really sure where the water is. Hmm. It's it's such an, it's made by a company called Triton, who I think are just geniuses. They're like the apple of submersible design. And um, when we got into the midwater, like where, where it was completely dark, the pilot covered up all the lights and told us, turned off every light and told us to shut our eyes. And then he counted to three. And on the count of two, he flashed the lights of the sub and on the count of three, we opened our eyes and all the gelatinous creatures flashed us back. So there, and we just did that over and over again. It was, it was like this communication. It was like this correspondence in a language of light and frequency that we don't know how to speak a word of. And it's the lingua franca of life on earth. When you think of how big that region is compared to, you know, the land that we live on these creatures they they speak in light most of the creatures in the bio in the deeper bioluminescent or have that capability or have some biofluorescence or some it must it's just like a really lively scene down there (laughs) and far more than just this dark emptiness i mean there's nothing empty about it it is filled as a soup of life and you see this marine snow then you think parts of it are detritus from the surface like um bits of things and dust and all that, but a lot of them are tiny little creatures. 
most of it is tiny little creatures. And you see these fish that they always show. They're, they're like the emissaries of the deep ocean. They're supposed to scare you with the giant teeth and the weird faces. They're like mm. the size of a quarter. They're these adorable little things. <laughs> they're so cute. <laughs> wow. So so yeah. when, you, when you're moving back up through all of that life and you're coming towards the surface, why grief? Why, why was that the feeling you had? Well, you know that blue color that you get, you see it at Piahi, you see it in Hawaii, I'm sure you see it in Australia, where the light is coming through. And it, to me, that color, it's not even a color. It's like a, an emotion. It's an experience in, that you feel on this very deep level. For me, it, it is like a resonance. Like that is the, the color that, for me, that's the color of home. And um, I didn't want to leave it. We were 200 feet still under the surface and things were getting lighter and I just didn't want to go up. And I felt like it would be like if you were allowed to visit somebody that you loved for six hours and then you were never going to see them again. That's what it felt like. Mm. That's really interesting to me, the first thing that comes to my mind when you speak of that is that feeling when you free dive, because there is that that experience also where you're you're in the deep and your your body's chemistry is changing and and you're being pulled down once you go past that negative buoyancy level, and there is like a returning feeling. And I guess they, they summed it up amazingly in that movie, the, the Big Blue, where he just swims off into the deep blue with the dolphins. But it's fascinating to me that you can still have that experience inside a submersible as well. And there's, there's something almost embryonic or something there, that, that feeling, that feeling of being completely held and, and wrapped. And I know in surfing, the core of the joy in the surfing experience is tube riding and that's very much the same thing when you're totally encapsulated in spinning blue water or whatever color it is but there's light coming through there and yeah you just want to stay there it's like a few seconds of clock time but it is so significant that we build our whole lives around it (laughs) and it's and time gets very strange in those spaces like when we were down there, we were down there for about seven hours. It could you could have told oh, me wow. it was thirty minutes, and I would have believed wow. you. And um, wow, I didn't so think it would be that long. Says that. What's the space of the submersible like? Can you stand up fully erect? And is there a toilet? No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you're in about this one had had uh, three people in it, so it was a little bigger than. Um, it was maybe a maybe a seven foot diameter plexiglass sphere. I mean, everybody has a comfortable seat, but you, you know, you're not moving around. Although I did at one point change places with the pilot and get to drive it for a bit on the bottom. But that one was spacey. The other one I went in was very tight, like being in a phone booth almost. It was five meters sphere and you're just covered in oxygen bottles. And, you know, I I actually did not have to uh, pee. I was worried about that. And, um, Somebody told me the trick to that is that you take a really warm shower like 30 minutes before you go. <laughs> and apparently that tricks your body for like 10 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's great to know. I don't think we'll be flying anytime soon, but if, yeah. we, if we do, that's what I'll do. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> what you said about the communication with light from these creatures is just so beautiful. And David reminds me of when we were camping a couple months ago and we had an experience. A friend caught a squid mm. and the squid seemed like it was dead. It was no longer living, but it was flashing these patterns, these beautiful shifting light mosaics. And it was kind of a revelation for me, similar to what you're saying, just going, this creature is capable of communicating in a way that I have no capacity to understand. I have no way to to translate or decode what this creature is saying. And and then in that moment, I was going, who am I to, to eat this intelligence? Which is a totally different conversation, but that's what it brought up for me. It just, it, wow, it was a really mm. astounding moment of remembering how small we are, how narrow our sensory systems are, how narrow our capacity for communication is compared to the myriad other ways of understanding and being in the world there are and through through the varying intelligences of other beings on this planet i just yeah that was a major mm. moment for me mm. is that something you're going to really grapple with when writing this new book trying to interpret what you were feeling and experiencing with that language of light down there and wrap those feelings those experiences into the tiny vessels of words. Oh yeah. But that, that is the challenge right there. You know, it's, it's so beyond words. So whatever I do, won't be able to do it justice. It will, I'll just do my best, but it's the same. It was the same with voices in the ocean. You know, it's like, you mm. know, this, I know, you know, this, I, you're in that book, by the way, you're mentioning yeah. that book. <laughs> yeah. Very honored. I was very, um, I should have actually spoken that. to you in person about that, but now maybe I'll have a chance now, but the, the intelligence is, the minds in the water. I mean, that is enough to humble you right there. I mean, they've had their big brains for, I'm going to maybe get this number wrong, but 200 million years. I, mm. uh, I have to, would have to look that up to get it exact, but it's a long time. And we have had our big brains for, you know, but somewhere between 800,000 and uh, 200,000 years. So like did John Lilly said, we're babies in the universe, you know, and um Imagine a world where there's your vision as a primary sense is not a very good survival strategy because a it's even if you're near the surface it's dark half the time and if you're in the depths it's dark all of the time so they're the masters of acoustic interpretation and frequency and patterns of energy and so us as a species I think if we were to survive ourselves and evolve hopefully you know, in a better direction, it would be that we could understand that just because we don't see something with our eyes doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's somehow diminished. There's this frequency that comes from the vibe that people give off. And it's not just about what feeds into your eyes and gets turned around in your brain and then gets kind of filtered through some cultural set of preconceptions and stories and things like that. Like there is just this pure set of energies that the rest of nature uses to interact with. And I hope we can get there. You know, I hope we can get there. And you think about the subtleties of, of say cetacean communication. I mean, it just, it's awesome. It's incredible. Mm. 
You you mentioned Dr. John Lilly. I'd love for you to uh, speak to his story a little bit more for people who maybe haven't read Voices in the Ocean yet. Can you talk us through his wild experiments? <laughs> well, so John Lilly was straight from the medical establishment, from the military, highly credentialed, you know, was a neuroscientist and also worked with the military. So he, you know, gray suited 50s, buttoned up, military, started getting a look at cetacean brains. And this is in the Cold War era. There was a sense of, well, what if we could make people do what we wanted? And, you know, there was a lot of funding (laughs) for experimenting on the brain. And he got a pilot whale brain and he saw some other cetacean brains and it just blew his mind. I mean, he, he started to do experiments with dolphins and he had encounters with dolphins that he couldn't explain. His, his rigorous empirical science training went a little bit out the window when he started to do things like um, he invented the isolation tank so he could put himself into an environment where he would be, in his thoughts, uh, a mind floating in the water to try to understand what it would be like to be a dolphin. And he ended up going over to the Virgin Islands, getting his own island. And he had a kind of a doctor no set up there with a lot of very beautiful female assistants walking around and bottlenose dolphins and buildings. And one of them was a house that was half filled with water and half not. And his notion was that could humans and dolphins live together? And that experiment went horribly wrong and kind of got him excommunicated from the science world, but he never gave up. I mean, he continually wanted to try to figure out some sort of a breakthrough where humans could communicate with dolphins. And along the way, he just took a huge amount of LSD. And, um, but he was in his, he, he ended his life on Maui where I lived until recently. And um, people said, you know, he, he just, he ended his life sort of staring out to sea. He was contemplating the mysteries right up until his last breath. And his writing is fantastic. I mean, but it, it is amazing to me that he thought that in any way, it hurt, it hurt his feelings that science kind of kicked him out. But he was so far away from, at that point, the dolphins had led him in a completely different direction. And um, he was a wise man, but he just maybe even a little ahead of his time. I don't know. What do you guys think of him? I was going to ask you why perhaps he, or maybe he did go down this route of inquiry, but I haven't seen any information about him doing this, but why he perhaps didn't go to Indigenous cultures that still have strong links with cetaceans uh, in this point in time and have obvious communication that goes back and forth between them. Did have you come across any of his writing or any efforts of his to to go down that route at all? No, I've I've read a lot of his stuff. And I don't think that and I think that when he started getting into his LSD era and his ketamine era, he was just sort of in the ether. But his his whole upbringing, his acculturation and all that, he came from a world that didn't wouldn't have had the the foresight to do that. They wouldn't have had the understanding of why that would be an important thing to do. As I said, you know, straight from the military, straight from, from, I don't forget which college it was like Princeton or Yale or something, but like straight from the cold war era U S 
And he went a long way. I mean, he went a long way as a very, I think he's almost more known for his, as a counterculture hero now than mm. he is as a scientist, which I think is appropriate. I mean, his science didn't only, only went so far. He killed a lot of dolphins experimenting mm. on them, but he, you know, for example, was the guy who figured out that they're not autonomic breathers. They're conscious breathers. They, yeah. If you can't put them under anesthesia, they'll die. They don't just keep breathing. And to think of something that simple that wasn't even known in, say, 1960, mm. it's pretty amazing. Um, mm. I mean, people would call them fish and, you know, yeah. didn't really understand them. There's some really fascinating stories that I've heard from mostly from Polynesian circles, so from New Zealand all the way across to Hawaii, of interactions and relationships with cetaceans are just fascinating. And one book called Dolphin, Dolphin by Wade Doak. I don't know if you ever came across this book, but it's uh, yeah, a bunch of Kiwis in the 70s and 80s in New Zealand who were having very frequent swims and time spent in the water with resident bottlenose dolphins on the North Island. And uh, they developed this term called interlock, where you would basically get to a, a state of sort of communicative connection between a dolphin and a human. And so they were part of what they were doing was trying to crack the code, you know, trying to figure out how is it we can we can somehow understand each other. And so what they were doing was uh, these sort of exercises in deep, deep visualisation where they discovered that if they placed themselves in their mind in the body of the dolphin and and just visualised how the humans looked from the dolphin's point of view and then perhaps visualised doing a type of motion as the dolphin, so putting a piece of seaweed on the right pectoral fin and coming up to the surface to the humans uh, and doing that action, if the humans visualised that action, but from the dolphin's perspective, they got to a point, a reliable point where the, the dolphin would come up and do that action. And then they would visualize another interaction of some sort, but always from the dolphin's perspective. And that was a way that they feel they, they cracked the code of at least being able to interact with each other in a way where they were having these, you know, very simple interactions but there were really clear results from it and so so anyway that I've always found that really fascinating and mention it to anyone who is open to speaking about such things because it's it's fun and it's just a, an interesting curiosity but it is still a code that we perhaps haven't cracked as westerners as modern folk here but I was just curious to see if you had any more insights or anything that perhaps didn't make the book that were along oh, those, yeah. those lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time um, with this one group on the Big Island that were pretty into that whole notion. Their sort of leader is a woman named Joan Ocean. And Joan used to work with John Lilly. And she just is this a really very new agey person uh, and very lovely and um, spent like uh, just sort of changed her life to swim with dolphins. So she moved to the Big Island and started swimming every single day in this one bay, Kealakekua Bay, and felt that the dolphins were downloading information to her all the time. And what it, I wrote about it pretty extensively in Voices in the Ocean. Some science people were really pissed off that I did that. But to me, it was, it's equally interesting. It's like approaching from the other side of your brain. 
And um, she would get messages from them that would just download. And it wasn't as something as obvious as a sound, like them making a sound at them. Although they, they do make sounds when they do various things, like if they clap their jaws, they're pissed off or, you know, but that is not how we interact with animals. They're not going to open their mouths one day and start speaking English to us, or we're going to figure out how to make a dolphin sound. And <laughs> it is some sort of mind meld. It is this sort of like understanding on an energetic level of two beings. Like if you have a dog or a cat, you've experienced this. And I, we can do this with every bit of nature, but it is not a muscle that we work very often. Learning about the neurochemistry and the neuroanatomy of our brains versus a dolphin brain was really a revelation for me because their brains are just set up, wired a little differently. They have uh, more gray matter in an area of the limbic system that really relates to emotion, it relates to empathy, uh, it relates to more of a collective idea. And maybe this isn't a brain adaptation that we'll eventually get to if we survive as a species as long as they have, and they've been through so many iterations. I mean, they were on land, then they were not social creatures when they first got into the water. Then they became social creatures with high frequency hearing, like they've adapted. And you can really make a strong argument that they are the most adapted creatures on this planet to live on an aquatic planet in a very collective way. So there is not this sense when you look at how their brains are constructed, there is just not the, the sense of every dolphin for himself. It doesn't compute. Like the most intriguing concept that I came across during the research with that, of that book, which, you know, one of the characters in it is probably the world's most eminent cetacean neuroscientist, this woman, Lori Marino, who really had the chops from the traditional, you know, you know, the university, the, the peer reviewed papers, everything. And eventually realized once she proved that animal, that dolphins could recognize themselves in a mirror, became unable to do experimentation on any sort of captive dolphin and started becoming a, a more of a, a voice for trying to, I don't know, express the moral obligations that we have to take care of other creatures that are sentient and just as intelligent as we are in a different manner. So this notion that, that blew my mind was that the very sense of self, like once a dolphin can recognize themselves in a mirror, that may seem like a simple thing to do, but it's this huge cognitive leap to say that, uh, that that's me. Like the concept of self is kind of a big deal. Not every animal has done, has done that mirror test and acted like they recognized that they were looking at a self. But dolphins have, some of the great apes have, magpies have, elephants have. Um, some I'm cephalopods? Sure I think some cephalopods as well. Octopi I don't know about octopi. it. I haven't heard of that experiment yet. Um, mm. And they're certainly smart enough, but whether or not their brain is wired in that way. Mm. Because this whole sense of self that we take for granted, to dolphins, it might be something different. Instead of the self ending, like mm. I am me and you are you, there might be a self that's more like, uh, I, I kind of after reading about it described it as a level beyond empathy where not only do I care about you but on a certain level I am you so that makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about some of the things we can't explain about dolphins like why for example in tai chi why don't they jump out mm. they can't dissociate in that same way like there is there like I said there's no such thing as every dolphin for himself you know and, and it's an intriguing question. I don't, you can never prove that hypothesis. But I do think that 
if, like I said, if our brains were to evolve in that direction, we somehow cared about each other's well-being more, we would, we would be moving in the right direction. Mm. I feel like the sort of popular storytelling these days around sort of discoveries like that is definitely happening when we see things like, you know, the mycelial networks and the the secret life of trees, the hidden life of trees, all those books and stories that are gaining such a loving audience these days is perhaps a sign that we are heading in that direction or that we have that appreciation of um, gaining a real sensitivity towards the oneness of all of this and I don't know I just I so yeah I feel like um, it's exciting to hear you talk about that and to and to speak of examples of where that's happening already all around us in various ways that moment that you're talking about in the barrel or the moment that I'm talking about in the submersible the thing that those also have in common is that there are these moments of stillness where not just stillness but where you're fully present and those are that moment that that instant when you're fully present that is where all the magic happens that's where all the communication happens and where all the awareness happens and so like i think that's why you do build your lives around this because what else is there you know mm-hmm. this is a, a way to to get there and i think it's all about getting there mm. Mm. or not getting there being there mm. Is your um, yeah. primary outlet for being there still swimming? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Swimming is like, for me, is, is a meditation. You, you mentioned that yeah. you were living in Maui until recently. Um, yeah. where, where are you going to base now? And, and will you still have access to a body of water to swim? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to spend half my time in Hawaii and half my time here. And um, just became a little difficult logistically being that far away from everything. Uh, And yet, you know, I never really want to be away from the ocean for too, too long. Um, There are amazing lakes here. Yeah. I I will always find a place to swim. I'm, I'm great with pools too. I really like, I just like any body of water where I can swim, but the ocean of course is my favorite. Apologies for interrupting the conversation, but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible. Thanks to Gary McNeil Concepts, who put together cosmic boards for cosmic people. Gaz's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to garymcnealconcepts.com. Susan, I couldn't have the privilege of speaking with you without bringing up your research about the great Minoan civilization when I was pregnant and we were trying to think up names for our little boy. I think I'd recently read your book and I thought about just some of the beautiful values that you were able to glean from your research about Minoan culture and instantly you know, Dave and I had encountered research about them over the years, and then we just knew we were like, "Oh my gosh, that's that's the name of our son. He's going to be Minoa." I love that. <laughs> I love that. I mean, to fi- even find people who know anything about the Minoans is like a real rarity, um, and they really are 
<laughs> I, I mean, I'm tempted to write a book about the Minoans because it makes me so happy to learn about them. Mm. The funny thing is how I found them was I set out to find the, the oldest art that I could find that had been like where somebody sat down and did a painting or made a bowl or did something like to try to indicate that there was a relationship with dolphins. And that research led me to them. And then I'm reading about it. And I'm like, wait a minute, they're, they were taken out by giant tsunami, a giant wave. And I, you know, I just spent five years and writing about this. Like, how did I not hear about this? Why don't I know about this? And the more I learned about them, the more I just sort of fell in love with them. And I mean, they just, they were a whole different ball game. They had a civilization that did that had different rules and it seemed to be really working for them and how they ended was a big mystery. But this is a very long conversation <laughs> if you want to have it, but it's like, it's just um, what they did leave behind are thousands and thousands and thousands of really well-preserved artworks, which are very detailed and a, a spiral shaped artifact that has their writing on it. That's got a little, pictograms of various things in nature that nobody can decipher. No linguist can tell. This is the language called linear A. I mean, they were magnificent. And if you look at their paintings, they had beautiful cities. They had beautiful clothing. They, they loved beauty. They had a lot of fun. They had no money. Like, And I, by no money, I don't mean they were poor. They had literally no currency. They didn't use it. In all of the artworks, there is no imagery they traded. They were artists and they were among the best artists. A lot of their stuff ended up in Egypt where the pharaohs, of course, could buy anything they wanted. The Minoans just wanted to do sports and revel in nature and make everybody happy. Basically, they were they were a prosperous society. When you go over there and you see the the buildings that have been excavated, like they were living large. over They, they had everything, but they didn't choose to do it the way we did it, where there was no hierarchical thing going on. There was no, in, in all the thousands and thousands and thousands of images that they've left, their paintings, their artworks, there is not one single image of violence. There's no, there's none of the classical Greek stuff of people being, women being carried off by their hair or animals being run through with a sword. There's like nothing going on like that there with the Minoans. Mm. You really get the sense that it, uh, when I was over there, I, I had an archaeologist show me around and it was during the time of Greek austerity. And so the excavation of Thera, which is on Santorini, was called Akrotiri. This city, I think of it as like a Sydney or a San Francisco of the Minoan world. They've started to excavate it and it's very well preserved, but it's going to take a lot of money. So they've only done a small portion of it. But among some of the things they got, when all the volcanic ash buried it, they were able to pull these frescoes. Then they had these, they're like 10 feet by 10 feet. And so I was allowed to go see some of the ones that had never been exhibited, but I wasn't allowed to take any pictures of them. And when they pulled, they pulled it out on a, it was like a wall on rollers. They pulled it out and it had all the little fragments. They were piecing it together. And I, it was all I could do just not to fall over onto my knees. It was so beautiful. And what it was, was a picture of this beautiful woman in profile. And she was sitting in a chair and she had this long, black, beautiful braid that had like dragonflies um, instead of like dragon. And then she had a necklace of dragonflies around her neck and this beautiful gown. And just like on either side of her were, were two griffins, but they weren't like the terrible, scary, they were like these beautiful birds 
with lion's bodies. And then there was a young girl with a, who giving her a flower and uh, behind her, there was a blue monkey. And it was just like that, that it was, it was mother nature and they called her Potnia. And it was just all about nature. And that's why their symbol is the spiral because nature works that way. When we tend to think of life as, you know, this beginning, middle, end, straight line sort of thing. But to that, to the Minoans, life was a spiral. It was all about the spiral. Mm-hmm. Can you situate the Minoan culture in time for us? Like we're talking about a, an ancient civilization. Yeah, oh, we're That's- talking, you know, they disappeared around 1500 BC. Um, the, the era in which some of their most famous artworks occurred was like 1700 BC. And um, they were around long before that. Uh, and they were in the Cyclades, in the Cyclades Islands in Greece, Crete and Thera, uh, which is what they what Santorini was known as, and maybe some of the others as well. And they had the, what they call the sort of the palatial area where they built these large compounds that are often referred to as palaces, but there wasn't a king or a queen. I mean, there may have been this this whole stuff about King Minos and all that. I think that's completely that's just nonsense. There was no king of the Minoans. If anything, it was a matriarchal society, but I don't even think it was really that. I think it was a real joint venture between the sexes and that there was just a lot of respect for the the femininity because that was the power of creation. Um, There's this great book that I found as I was researching called, um, unfortunately, the author has passed away, but it's called um, In Search of the Lost Feminine. I think I told you about it. That book goes into great detail about why they were different in this way, this sort of, I don't know, this, the, the lost feminine is, is, you know, loss of connection with nature. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's where we find ourselves now. And we got to get back from that because that's a story that doesn't end well. So yes, yeah, so when the Minoans disappeared, I mean, they were the first ocean going, um, uh, they call them the thalassocracy, you know, like they, and there is a guy, oh, there's another guy who wrote a book. Um, gosh, I forget the name of it is the author's name is Gavin Menzies though. And he was a naval officer and he went over and saw some of the frescoes and looked at the boats and went, wait a minute, that's a hydrofoil. Mm. That boat has a hydrofoil. And, and just sort of realized that their abilities in the ocean and their understanding of the ocean was much more advanced. Um, and, and who knows, like, Oceania, Polynesia, all of these cultures that these sort of ancient cultures had, had a big relationship with the ocean. And, and um, I would love to know more about all of it. Uh, it seems to a lot of it has been lost. And people talk about, well, Aristotle was the first marine biologist. It's like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and Susan, was it, is it true that no human remains have been found from Minoan civilization? They have found Minoan remains from long ago, but what they don't have, which this is mind blowing, is when this Akrotiri, this uh, city in Thera and Santorini, when it was covered in ash, when, you know, when basically Santorini cracked and the volcano blew its top and the caldera that you see that's on all the postcards is incredibly deep. And that was a round mountain. That was the peak of a mountain that was in there. So this whole place was smothered under ash. So this whole city was smothered under ash. And there was obviously quite a lot of earthquake action before it. And maybe they were able to get away. But when the archaeologists began to excavate Akrotiri, there are no bones there. There are no 
animal bones. There's no, there's not a single human skeleton. Imagine if they tried to evacuate any city that we know of on planet earth today. Can you imagine? There's no way they would, there wouldn't be, I don't understand. I mean, Mm. it was, if you could try, if I could time travel, that's where I would go. I want to see what was going on that day Mm. because um, it's a mystery. And so people think, okay, they were able to get away. They got in boats, they left, but how do you do that? How do you get every last person? How does every elder get out? I mean, how does every dog get out? I, I don't know. Mm. I love Susan that, like you just said, if you could time travel, that's where and when you'd go. But with what you have got, you use and you go to these places. And that's something I really love about your writing is that you didn't just uh, read about and speak to others about Minoan history. You you went there and you felt the place. You smelt the air. You felt the sun on your skin in that area. And I feel like it would be lovely to hear from you about your reason for doing that when you are in a project or a, or a real state of inquiry about something. I love that you you just go straight to the source of what it is you're researching and writing about. Uh, why do you do that? I think for nonfiction writing, you really everybody has to do that. Short of like if you're writing about an event that occurred. I mean, I almost every, I, I'm trying to think of anybody I know who wouldn't do this in my field, but I do agree with you that I've gone to some great lengths to try to get into some yeah. of these places. Not, and not everyone's places on the back of a ski. Like you, not everyone who yeah. rides would go, I'm going to get on a ski with Laird and go out to Piahi or sit in the channel at Chopu and have that wave explode all over you. It's, yeah. you know, you, you've gone, you go to the depths and you literally are doing that now again. Yeah. It's just, I'd love to hear well, that's, more. About you know, it. that's the joy of it too, is like being able to tell people, like, hey, look over it, like look at this thing. I mean, it it is you know, maybe readers won't all get to go to the Farallon Islands, although you can get on a whale watching boat and go around it, but let's go places and do stuff. Um, I, I always want to, I always think of myself as like a proxy for the curious person. Like I, I will go out there and try to do this. If you're interested in doing it, don't have the time, can't do it for whatever reason, come along with me. I'll do it with you. To me, that's fun. And that is also the sort of, I guess, full immersion that I, I like to write about. I think it's easier to write about something if you actually have <laughs> smelled it and touched it and seen it and, um, it gives you a better shot at creating an immersive experience for the reader too, I think. Mm. Yeah. Do you have work now where you are uh, able to, it's a, it's a strange period in time for gathering and holding events or doing book tours or speaking events. Is that something that's been a part of your life and perhaps you're adapting with it right now of, of being with others and, and storytelling person to person speaking engagements, that kind of thing? I mean, I, I always enjoy going out and talking to people. Um, I feel like I feel like my books are a bit of a dog whistle and the people that read them and want to talk to me, I really want to talk to them too. And, um, you know, to, to meet kindred spirits all over the world is the great joy of, of my life. I, I um, Right now, I'm, I'm kind of fortunate because I've done most of my reporting and, and the time that has overlapped with COVID has coincided with me 
planning any way to be in 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 the real inner space of writing. So um, aside from a few reporting trips that I had to postpone, I've just been here the way I would have been even without this pandemic. So I'm very grateful for that. Although I I wouldn't say I'm firing on completely all cylinders. I think like everybody, it was a weird year. So I think this book won't be done until 2023 now. I was hoping it would be late uh, fall 2022, but Mm -hmm. it's on track. So um, I'm fortunate. Um, I love what you wrote about the other day on your Instagram account. Just simply, you said Mars schmars. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just want to keep going to the bottom of the ocean we're we're in a time where there's I don't know if we've sort of passed peak Mars obsession fascination or not, but a lot of people are set on exploring <laughs> oh, other worlds. Down on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. What um, what makes you set your fascination and your mind and your inquiry on this planet rather than setting your eyes to that extraterrestrial? Look, I would love to go into space. I mean, who wouldn't? I, I that would be fantastic. But this, the, there's this problem that we have right now with constant needing defining progress as constant expansion. Like we need more of this. Mm. We just need to keep growing. We need to expand. We're constantly looking for the bigger, more, greater, whatever. We've got all this lingo and all our lexicon is all built around that. But the real the the inner journey and that you know, on a micro level, on a macro level, in the ocean, in yourself, the inner journey to me is the richer one at this particular moment. And, you know, to hear Sylvia Earle talk about it, she's like, you know, space is lovely, but it's dead. I mean, the thing I noticed when I was feeling the mass of the ocean around me in the deep, and then you look and, you know, they have really good lights on these sub, you look through the water column and there's just life. It's just everywhere. It is this matrix of life. And so to me, that's, that's just more interesting. On the other hand, if somebody said to me, hey, you can go and see the planet from space, I would be there in a hot minute. But um, it comes down a little bit to priorities as a society because the ocean research doesn't get quite enough of everything that it needs. Um, and space seems to get this overabundant amount of excitement and interest. And I guess there's just people like rockets and you can see it. And again, we're also in this whole thing again, where if we can't see it, we're not interested in it. But in the invisible world, um, there's this great quote, uh, God, I wish I could remember who said it, but the invisible world can speak to us. And boy, does it ever speak to us um, if we just pay attention. Mm. Oh, Terry Tempest Williams. Terry Tempest Williams did that quote. Well done. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You were just saying that the cultural thing of not seeing is a hurdle of some sort. Is there more enthusiasm right now with this vessel that goes 11,000 metres deep? Is there, in those circles, is there more support for those ventures now and uh, those goals or is it getting more difficult to dive deep in that way? I think what what Victor has done with this submersible is literally historical in in significance, but like it's a perfect example of how this guy's been going all over the world to places nobody's ever gone, deeper and deeper and deeper, taking scientists along with him, taking people like me along with him, 
And you, you know, he's gotten some attention, but you know, Elon Mars sends a rocket up and it's, I mean, it's, it's just disproportionately, it's just, I don't know why, and maybe you have an idea why, but why it's harder to get people interested in the ocean than it is in space. And, and this is a very expensive proposition. Um, what he's doing with the submersible, I think the whole system costs with the ship and everything costs somewhere along the lines of 60 or $70 million. And he had hoped to sort of basically fund its creation. Like there were ideas on the drawing board for a submersible like this, but no client who wanted to, to do it. And whose idea of fun is it to go down into complete pitch darkness into the Mariana Trench? They needed a guy who's not only, or a woman, not only fulfills that notion, but has got the drive to, to do it and the ability to do it. And so this sort of perfect storm came together in this one individual. He, he created this submersible, this team, this ship. And then he thought, I'm going to pass this on to some somebody else, some science institution to somebody. And so far, he has not got any takers. Um, I don't know if the virus had something to do with that, but most of the deep sea research at this particular point in time is being done by ROVs, by AUVs, by robots, by gliders. And it makes a lot of sense because they can do more. They can stay in the water 24 hours a day and, you know, you just get more science done, but there's just nothing like the human experience of being down there. That is a different thing. Um, it would be nice if we could have both. I mean, in, when it comes to exploration of our planet, of the universe, of anything, I don't understand why there isn't more curiosity, I guess, um, mm. just overall more drive to, to explore it. I, I felt during the pandemic, that the real foreclosure of being able to go somewhere and see something you haven't seen before was one of the hardest parts. Um, there's just so much to explore. Mm. Are there any key um, learnings that have happened in recent history of going down into the deep, either in peopled vessels or the, you know, the drony type tech? Is there anything that you've come across that's just really been a huge discovery of sorts? Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's all kinds of things. And I mean, there's so many that I have, I mean, it, it's just files and files and files and some of them are very small, but they mean big things. Like mm. they're getting close to being able to figure out in some places they found a, a microbe that is, um, so there's protists, there's like single celled organisms and there's eukaryotes, which become us. Right. And, or trees or animals. There was like the sense of how did we get from one to the other? They found a microbe that it's called an archaea but it's got characteristic. They found it in the Arctic in a hydrothermal vent deep under the ocean. And it's got characteristics of um, eukaryotes, but it's not a eukaryote. So it like, there's things like that. Like there's all these pieces to this, this incredibly intricate puzzle. And we're starting to get these pieces and put them together. And they now know that life goes much, much, much deeper than we thought it would into the deep beneath the seafloor deep, like who knows how deep it gets the threshold that probably determines where it ends is temperature, but there's science now to put a DNA sampler in, in the water and tell you exactly who's in there. And it doesn't have to be a full genetic sequence. It can be a fragment of DNA. And so there is just this, this acceleration of learning everything that's going on um, in the deep right now. And, and that's why I wanted to write this book right now, even though it's, it's an awfully large topic. I wanted to see how much of that kind of discovery I could get into it. Some of it's quite technical, but if you start delving into it, like it's, 
it becomes just riveting as well. Are you one of many doing that? Is there a, is, do you feel like there's a wave of people who are wanting to so. in, interpret it? Yeah. I really but, hope so. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the most fascinating subjects in town. So, and, and like I said, no matter what I do, it's going to be the tip of the iceberg. So I hope a lot of people do. Mm. Yeah. Oh man. So many adventures. I know. <laughs> oh my God. Will you tell me about your adventure with when you started service recitations? that I wrote about in Voices in the Ocean. I wrote about it very briefly. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a classic moment when I was just oh, loving turning the pages of that book and then I saw my name there. I was like, oh, no. Oh, God, here we go. I was just wondering. I don't know. I, I've, it's been an interesting journey doing cetacean campaigns and, and work over the years in the surfing world and, and sort of quite easily setting myself up to be a target practice for, you know, the kind of um, the macho culture of surfing. And, um, but largely it's been quite positive. But, um, but anyway, so thank you for, for speaking sweetly in your book. Um, uh, that whole experience was something that uh, really just came from the network of surfers around the world. So I think that's one of the reasons why we do this um, water people podcasts and have done so for the last few years is, is because there is this great saltwater network around the planet of people, coastal people who, you know, dive, surf, sail and swim. And at that point in time, so this is the early 2000s, uh, I was doing the surfing traveler thing and getting to go back to places around the world each seasonal cycle. And one of those places was Japan. And so uh, going there and learning uh, about the, the drives, learning about just industrial fishing methods all over the world, and then also realising that for some strange reason I was very popular in Japan because of my surfing skill and, and my interests that were more left field than the, the standard professional surfer. And so it was just this opportunity where I was like, oh, wow, okay, so I've got a bit of a a platform and, and access to the surfing public in Japan. And then I found that n- none of them knew anything about the drives, really. There was small talk of it in just the Wakayama prefecture there, but it was also really uncommon knowledge that the that cetacean meat was being sold, even with all of the heavy metals and the mercury and everything in the meat. Uh, and that the school lunch program was happening, that that contaminated meat was being fed to children. Um, and so I felt a real responsibility to to share with my surfing kin uh, all that information and that I had the opportunity to because I had this platform through surf media. And so I started to use that to just share information that for some reason we knew more about those those issues here in Australia and New Zealand and whatnot than our friends in Japan who were surfing there. So, so anyway, that's, that sort of um, gave me a real kick up the bum to start doing something, anything. Uh, and then uh, it was quite interesting just two days after starting uh, Surface Visitations with my good friend Howie Cook, I had a bottlenose dolphin uh, push a tiger shark away from me in a surfing experience. That's crazy. Which was pretty wild uh, after a life of pretty much being in the ocean surfing every day along this stretch of coast that had never happened to me. And then it was literally quite <laughs> instant that that uh, bottlenose experience happened. And 
And really, um, those type of experiences have continued to happen over the years when I've been working on those issues. Some magical stuff just happens. And uh, so anyway, um, I then bumped into Rick O'Barry and uh, Louis Sahoyas in Alaska for the International Whaling Commission. And uh, I was there just sort of covering that commission and reporting back to the surfing world on yeah, all the misgivings of those meetings. And when we all connected, it was obvious that Rick O'Barry really needed support. He needed people to come there to help uh, elevate his work and help amplify what was going on there. And that was just a no-brainer. It was it was really quite swift after that. I just put the word out through the surfing world that we were going to go there to do something um, and and then when we got there, I revealed what it was we wanted to do, which was very peaceful, very ceremonial, very um, much in line with the Japanese sense of ceremony and tradition there, non-confrontational, very peaceful, uh, and also authentic to the surfing culture that we have this history of doing uh, paddle-outs, circles, um, for, for those who have passed away as a way to honour them and say goodbye. Uh, and so... And I came up with the idea of doing that there. And then that's when, yeah, those those guys, the whole um, uh, Ocean Preservation Society film team captured that and we did all cool. of that. Yeah, I mean, Taiji, I went to, I, I saw that. I saw, of course, and I know those guys as well. Um, and Rick is one of the characters and voices in the ocean. Mm. Taiji is a hard place, but it's mm. so beautiful, the mm. scenery there, but the town is not. <laughs> yeah yeah hard it's, place yeah do, do either of you know what the status is of the taiji drives i, I think it continues i mean I, I think the meat the toxicity of the meat as i think it has slowed down maybe the the fishery of dolphins but i think the export of dolphins is how they make money and it's not you know it's it's a off the beaten tourist track it it doesn't have to be because i like i said i think it's like a unesco site and a national park and everything else like it's a spectacular stretch of coastline but they have just uh the fishing uh the fishing industry in that little town or the fishing union or whatever it is are uh just hell bent on continuing it uh, it continues yeah i don't know what will stop it and um you know, the Kuroshio current comes so close there that they, they end up with a lot of rarer species coming close enough to, to the shoreline that they can catch them in their, these pretty small fishing boats. So when I was there, you know, they had false killer whales, they had pilot whales, they had Rizzo's dolphins, they had some of these, these just awesome animals, which there aren't a whole lot, you know, they're just, mm. I, I, I don't know how long it goes on. I think Rick is, is, I don't know when he's last been back there. He was kind of ejected mm. from the country. And I think he has gone back once though. Mm. I think he might've gone this year. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's so complex and yeah, it's an interesting one uh, for me just around, I guess, um, initiatives like that or efforts like that uh, in the, in the surfing world, it's a very, as you would have experienced through being on Maui and uh, and also spending time with some of the surfers in California, you know it's a small network in some ways, and it's it's easy to 
connect with each other and hear each other's stories. Um, but a lot of the time they're quite escapist stories. It's just about, oh, a new wave that's been found to surf or it's, it's about having a good time. And I was wondering from all your experience with writing, inserting, and I guess you touched on it before where you say that you're, you're an activist but you don't start writing as an activist, laying out good and bad so overtly, but are there any tricks of the trade? Is there, is there anything you could share with us on how to deliver these really emotional or, yeah, hard-to-face to um, facts and information so that we can start having conversations with each other that, that really need to be happening, especially in areas of coastal communities where, um, yeah, the tendency has been to be quite escapist through surfing and, and the, the joy of it. Um, I think you just did it. Like you speak from the heart and, you know, nobody, people have like weird reactions when you start to tell doesn't even matter how well-intentioned the person is. I think if, if somebody starts telling you what to do, something closes up. Whereas if you tell someone a story and in particular, if you tell your story um, and you do it in an, in, in a way that from, if you do it, like hopefully this doesn't sound too sucky, but like for, you do it from love, you know, come from a place of, of the heart. And um you know, Voices in the Ocean was an interesting book to write because there was, it's a hard, there's a lot of hard stuff going on in, in Taiji. There's hard stuff going on in the Solomon Islands, uh, where I also went. And yet at the same time, there's the magic of the dolphins. So like the balance of them, it's like, here's who they are and here's what we're doing. And those two things, like a lot of people uh, who care deeply about dolphins were afraid to watch the cove because they didn't, couldn't bear to see dolphins suffering. You know, it's completely human impulse to not want to immerse yourself in that. Um, so one of the reasons I wrote about Taiji and Voices in the Ocean was for the, maybe the people that didn't want to look it in the eye the way they, they, even though the movie did a very good job of skirting that a little bit the, and getting mm -hmm. it across at the same time, I, I tried to do the same thing. You, you tell the truth from the heart, and it's your story. Your story may encompass a lot of other stories that you've brought into your realm that other people have told you that say that scientists have told me or that I've learned, but it's ultimately, it's my story and everybody reacts to people want to hear other people. And so the most important thing is to speak in your own voice. And, you know, as a writer, that's, that's job one is to find out how are you going to tell the story but in a unique way, that's your voice. It's not another voice you've heard. It's it's like, what do you bring to this party? What you bring to this party is your heart, your voice. So we often think, hey, this is the way it's done. Look at this is the formula for this or that. To me, I, I say, no, you could technically get in there and make sure that everything that takes away from the perfect telling of your story is removed and in the editing process or in the you know, how you choose to structure it process, but the ultimate thing that has to come through is the resonance of you. And you just did that when you just told your story. So you don't need any tricks of the trade. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could do with a bit of scrubbing up. Well, it's, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing. It's, it, it feels like a really important skill at this point in time when there's so many sort of, I guess, spot fires popping up everywhere that need to be put out and we need to be, yeah, just, 
speaking with each other and having actual conversations of back and forth. Yeah, that's why we've come back to the podcast over the last few seasons. It's just feeling deeply the power of storytelling to connect us, to create the opportunity for real dialogue, to break down barriers when you, I don't know, it's so easy to get into that place of telling instead of showing and spewing facts instead of... There's a, there's a big rule there. Yep. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for your time and for, for doing such thank you. beautiful storytelling and taking us along with you and, and managing to be a potent activist through all of your books. It's really inspiring. Yeah, I'm a stealth activist. <laughs> Journalist by day, stealth activist by night. Yeah. 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 Thanks to Susan for her expert storytelling and for being such a stellar advocate for the magic of the ocean. Special thanks always to our sound engineer and in-house musician, Shannon Sol Carroll. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my partner in rhyme, Dave Rastovich, thanks for making the time to listen with us. If you have a spare moment, please consider leaving a review of the podcast or sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to keep the podcast going and to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcast. You can find every episode on our website, waterpeoplepodcast.com.